Rusty Quill presents. Sin Carriers, a West Side fairy tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Tolliver's drivers and a man of extremely dark tastes. He alone is witness to the spectacle of Culver Pembroke losing his arm to the wood and is seemingly uninterested in helping. Sue takes that job onto her shoulders quite literally, stripping her shirt off without a care and tying off Pembroke's injury before it can kill him. Shortly thereafter, we met Victor Melanais, the neurodivergent typewriter salesman slinging the freshest in typographic technology, the Blackwell Automatic Typewriter. We're also introduced to Elam Price, a Native American accountant who prefers to keep his past to himself. As the crew traveled east, the silly was tormented endlessly by Tolliver Lowe, a man who doesn't, and may never, understand just how overbearing he can be. Lowe's daughter, Moira, helps calm Vasily just in time for him to perform life-saving, if amateur, surgery on Penrose. After arriving at their first destination, Sue interrupts the cowboy Colt Wickless just in time to prevent his assault on a hapless young girl. In this episode, the crew settle into the next leg of their journey en route to the Sierra Nevadas, where they'll make their second drop-off. With one man already critically injured and a pack of ruthless Bakertons on their heels, will this stop prove too deadly for our travelers to handle? You may find the answers to this question and more on this, the fourth episode of Sid Carrier's Drop-offs. Grit blew off the tracks, dusting the sea of lettuce stretching into the distant mountains. Amidst this ocean of green rose the tracks and the berm, which a bird might see as a great slash in the blocky perfection of the fields and farms. The squat, square towns and homes and villages spread amongst the valleys. This cut ran from the ocean in its way, and along it passed the train and the travelers, though they were long gone now save the lightest tinny ringing from the rails, vibrations marking the memory of motion, until he came upon the berm and his horse's rotten hoof quelled the shaking. The noise was like a great, spinning penny being slapped silent against a table. Thus came the rider, dark clouds boiling on the horizon behind him. His head hung low over the horse's back, giving the impression of a wounded man barely able to keep his saddle. A casual passerby might even figure as much and approach, but only until they saw the tight, screaming eyes of the dead skin mask dangling from his forehead. Then a feeling of malaise and confusion, a need to be somewhere else. Forgetfulness. The horse proceeded, bouncing the rider until they came upon the pallet of strange wood left on the side rail beside the small village. 
Only then did his shoulders creak and roll and crack him upright. His broad, dusty hat shifted, and he took in the scene. The wood lay stacked in a pile the same way he had seen in the shipyard, where the man Kellen had died. His hand traveled up to the face and he tugged at the mask's eye holes, wondering idly at what they had seen. The wood was wrong. Dangerous. Though not to him. It was like finding a fired arrow hanging in the sky, waiting for its turn to land. Seek not this heart, a voice whispered. From his own mind or the wood, he did not know. Beneath the pile lay a dozen human garments, most tainted with blood and other leavings. Shit, piss. The deeper, more exciting scent of fear, pain, hunt smell, sun-heated flesh beneath an open sky and sweat. There were many tracks of many ages beneath the train car holding the wood, but the freshest and deepest lay in the mud-blood slurry at the close end of the pile. There the tracks were both willing and unwilling, full of hoof prints and the long, skittering lines of some who'd been dragged to this place. Deep pits for knees, fresh handprints ahead of those. No splash, no splatter. Merely dripping, pouring, and spreading. All this from the head of the pile, where the boards lay so tightly against each other it might be impossible to fit a pry bar between them. Blood clung to the irregular ends like blueberry skins to the cheeks of a child. He watched a while longer, enjoying the scent of the place. The work was immature, but well done. New. He had once watched coyote pups strip down a mule deer as it howled and begged, reddening the stones of a dry grass prairie. This was as that was. And at that time, the coyotes had looked at him with concern and tilted their noses to the air. Their parents, understanding of these things, had forsaken the blood for the safety of the furthest rocks. He could take from them, if he desired, but he did not. There was no sense of this connection here by this wood pile. But perhaps, if he lingered... He sat astride his horse until the sun fell and nothing came of the pile. It lay as cold and dormant as a shell on a beach. Have it your way, he said in a low, crunching voice. And then he turned his horse down the line and commanded it forward, tipping his hat low and hunching over the beast's neck. There was no rush to catch the train. Speed for the kill, caution for the hunt. The woodpile alone was cause enough for caution. Fresh prey, new predators, all smells familiar and unfamiliar. He let himself dream of them as he bent and slept over the rotten horse carrying him further. When the night was deep and the moon creeping high and the rider long gone, the woodpile shivered and popped and split along its bloody mouth. What issued from it was black and broad and placentile, and hung like a bag of rot before bursting open over the dirt. The thing inside this membrane rolled in the dust and caking mud, clawing film from its blind eyes and unfurling its limbs. It cried into the blackened sky and clawed at the open air. Cried and clawed. Cried and clawed. 
Vasily shuddered and sat up awake, calming only when he felt Yumiko's hands pressing down against his chest. He touched her face and a soft hand grabbed his and pressed it against his chest, squeezing it and stepping away. His eyes adjusted to the cabin's light and he realized it was Miss Moira and not his deceased wife touching his face. He shifted to look at her and felt a sudden, startling pain in his chest that dropped him onto his back. When he touched it, he found only the shape of the odd red letter in his pocket. What the devil? He whispered to himself in Russian, fumbling into his pocket to touch the letter. It was feverishly hot between his fingers. My God, Moira said, pushing him back down and looking over his face. His eyes widened at the intrusion, but he managed not to panic, instead watching the young woman look him over. Are you having a heart attack? No, he said, confused. Then he realized what his grabbing the letter must have looked like. He continued in a softer tone. I... no. Something is wrong with my chest, I think. But not so bad a thing as that. Just a muscle cramp, probably. He touched the letter again and let his eyes drift away from Miss Moira. His mind wanted to wander to the awful dream he'd been having. The nightmare about the stack of lumber they'd left behind. A rider of some sort. He shook the thoughts away. What are... Might I ask, what are you doing in my room? He asked, returning his eyes to Miss Moira's. She cocked her head at him and turned up her lip, clearly mulling something over. You don't remember? She asked. He shook his head. The dream, painted darkly and in such stark colors, was all he could seem to think about. She sighed. Well, you were as they say, apoplectic about my father. I thought you were going to have a fit of some sort. Or, and I don't mean to be rude. It seemed like maybe you were. She looked down and smoothed her dress. The garment didn't require such attentions. I brought you back here after you purchased some sundries from that post exchange and you paid me to be your... Um, you said it in French, I think. My gendarme, Vasily said. It was coming back to him. The bad dream was like a fog on glass, fading but persistent. He remembered much of it now, and was glad not to be too embarrassed by it. He'd bought a touch of laudanum from the exchange, and the opium was likely the cause of his dream and the lingering fogginess. That's a French policeman? She asked clearly remembering his own explanation to her. He nodded and rolled to set his feet on the ground, cradling his forehead in his hands. The laudanum had been for the boy who'd lost his arm in the woodpile, though Vasily had taken a healthy dollop for himself after the procedure. He looked at his fingernails and saw the persistent ruddiness of the bloodstains and all the fine imperfections. A policeman, yes, after a fashion, he said. I'm sorry to have roped you into this. I, I do not like bloodshed. The woman nodded sagely and then pulled a few crumpled bills out of her dress. She didn't turn away from him now as she had when they'd first met. 
You paid me for the trouble. Moira said with a smile, fanning out the bills and then panicking when she saw they were limp with her sweat. She hurriedly reordered and folded them before tucking them back inside her corset. In any case, uh, you're a boon to have with us, Mr. Tavarish. And Father should certainly consider retaining you in earnest. She leaned forward and continued in a lower voice. You saved that man's life. A lobe man. You should demand some sort of compensation. Does your father part with compensation easily? Vasily asked after a while, looking up at her. Moira bit her lip and looked away, leaving it at that. He chuckled. Then perhaps I'll ask you to suggest I expect some and am urgent to speak to him about it. Perhaps that will keep him away from me for the rest of the trip. Moira gave him a look of open-mouthed astonishment and slapped him lightly on the forearm. Mr. Tavarish, you most certainly are some sort of genius, she said. They shared a long, deeply refreshing bout of laughter. It was nice to hear the light, bell-like giggle of a young woman after all those months at sea, after losing his Yumiko. He stood sharply when his thoughts began drifting to the grate black depths of the Pacific. Moira all but yelped and stood herself, chuckling when the mood failed to diminish. Vasily kept himself from apologizing, a great effort, and took a deep breath instead. Perhaps he started. Could you... He turned away from the young woman and stroked his mustache while looking out the window. The lettuce fields had given way to clay-red earth colored all the more scarlet by the setting sun. It drew his fingers again to the letter in his pocket, which he touched firmly now, wondering at the shapes laying hidden beneath the heavy paper. He pulled it free and looked at it, holding it close to his chest. Open it, perhaps? He thought to himself. Curiously, he thought in English, which was uncustomary for him. He flicked the paper and then returned it to his jacket pocket, turning to find Miss Moira waiting patiently for him to finish. She was concerned about him, he could tell. It was a commonality amongst most of the kind women he'd met in his life. When, inevitably, his conditions manifested, some woman would take it on herself to ensure he was well cared for. Mothers like the one he never really had. Women who existed in opposition to the truncheon-like manhood with which his father plagued both him and the world at large. In Moira's eyes, he recalled Yumiko's first soft touches as she began to understand him, began to understand that her own father's wishes and the journey that had begun in Vladivostok were not written stone, and that, most certainly, it would not be Vasily who wielded the pen if she wished to change course. I think, perhaps, I am an engineer, Vasily said trying to pull his thoughts from the mire of his internal dialogue enough to speak with this young woman. She seemed to understand the effort this took him and remained, not silent, but receptive, long enough to hear him out. When he didn't continue, she leaned in and smiled. Are you sure? She asked. He gave her a confused look. That you're an engineer, Mr. Tavarish? He cleared his throat and nodded and took a breath. 
Yes. Yes, he said. I am an engineer, and I think it would be good to look over these wood piles your father had loaded aboard this engine. He patted his forehead dry and touched his mustache, looking at the floor and the blue ruffles of Miss Moira's dress to center himself. The storage of these planks might be subpar, and I think it would be in order to make sure they're safe to be around. He raised his eyes to Miss Moira's. I most certainly do not wish to do any more surgery during this trip. It's not something I'm comfortable with. He smiled when her eyes lit up and she nodded at him. That's a marvelous idea, she all but shouted. He nodded and looked around the small, empty room, as though they weren't alone in it and some unwanted attention might be drawn their way. Moira stood up straight and extended her hand to Vasily, palm up, and spoke in an overly proper tone. I shall lead you on your inspections, sir. She winked at him and added in a lower voice, I am father's unofficial manifest supervisor. He doesn't understand a lick of anything but how to be a man in business. This whole thing would fall apart without me. I have no doubt, Vasily said, taking her hand lightly, giving it a single shake, and then bowing his head slightly. Please, lead the way. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. We got new merch in the merch store. Yeah, it's me again. I ain't in this season or last season, but maybe some season. Anyway... We got new t-shirts featuring the signs of the five. Bring out your inner imago by marking yourself for your favorite deity. They won't care, probably won't even notice. But trust me, when you start sprouting extra arms, you'll say it was worth it. So get yourself a hand of sticks, a divided sun, or maybe even a blind horizon today at westsidefairytales.com slash merch. It's the best stuff ever. Really? WestsideFairyTales.com slash merch. You won't regret it. Vicky pushed his way through the crowded sleeping car the Loeb Company drivers had taken for themselves. 
It lay much further up the train than his own car, practically on top of the livestock car carrying the driver's horses, which made it smell perfectly awful. He honestly didn't mind the livestock smell as much as he did the driver's. They were all lanky, rough-handed men with mean little eyes and a slow way about them he didn't understand. They seemed to always be waiting for something, like owls sitting over a barn door. In any case, they weren't his people, and liked to ensure he knew that about himself. Hey now, boy, one of them said as he passed. He cursed to himself and walked faster, trying not to trip on the loose straps of the bags and satchels stuffed beneath the lowest racks. One of the men, sensing blood in the water, stood and leaned against the door ahead of Vicky, doing so as though he had no idea what he'd just done. I'm talking to you, boy, the same man said, popping up off his rack and landing with a rocking hitch to his step. He moved like a weasel, loping toward Vicky with a rolling step that rocked his head side to side. Vicky bit his lip and forced himself to look the man in the eyes though he took his tidy little bowler hat off his head while doing so. The man had his own hat hung off the back of his neck by a leather cord. He picked at his nails with a penknife. What you doing in my car, boy? He asked, not looking at Vicky. I'm... I'm... I need to inspect my cargo every night of transit per, per Blackwell Company procedures, Vicky said. He swallowed and looked behind him. Another man was now leaning against the door he'd come in, hat down around his eyes like he'd fallen asleep that way. Vicky took a deep breath and tried to step past the man toward the door, but the man put a hand on him. Please, please and thank you, the man said. That's good. Keep up that politeness with me, boy. Understand that? Vicky just glared at him. Now, that'd be a yes sir comes out your lips next. The man was as handsome as he was awful, with narrow hips and the good, blocky sort of jaw women liked. His eyes were cobalt blue and narrow, like a penny dreadful gunslinger, and Vicky found himself wondering if this man had ever done one of those noontime duels people were always gossiping about, shooting another man down in cold blood over cards or women or whatever, just because he could. The heavy sixer on the man's hip suggested as much. I just need to get by, Vicky started to say. The man slapped him backhand without so much as looking at him. His skin left a scrim of grease on Vicky's cheek, and Vicky could taste a bit of blood on his tongue. The man opened his mouth to explain his actions, something regarding calling him sir, but Vicky reared back and punched him in the mouth. The man was so startled he tossed his penknife over his shoulder. He looked at his hand and licked his lip, staring at the smear of blood there. He pulled his pistol and pointed it at Vicky's chest, grabbing the smaller man by the lapel and pushing him against the floor-ceiling bars holding the racks. The other men, even those on the doors, now raised their voices in protest. You just fucking touch me, you worm, he said. His eyes were hot and hard and small. His tongue flicked out over his lips, which Vicky saw were terribly dry. How fucking wickless, an older man said from his rack on the opposite side of the sleeper. Vicky dared to look at him and saw nothing but shadowy limbs and the rough shapes of a hat over a face. 
Let him go. Put that away. Mind your own fucking business, Garvey. Wickless, the man holding Vicky, spat. He seemed much less confident talking to this man, Vicky noted. Keep up that lip, boy. I will come down there and mind it. You understand? Garvey said. Vicky shivered, looking up at the man, and felt Wickless do the same. Then Wickless tossed Vicky across the car, forcing him to catch himself over the sweating, moaning form of the man who'd lost his arm earlier that day. Vicky reeled back and began muttering to himself, running through his sales literature to stay grounded. The compulsion, not always welcome, was this time a certain relief from this pressure cooker of a room. All I wanted to do was my job, Vicky thought to himself, his internal track completely divorced from the high-speed recitation keeping his jaw in motion. He started walking toward the door, but a foot dropped down and poked him in the shoulder. Take out your wallet, boy. Garvey said. All Vicky could see of him was an elbow and the foot. He obeyed all the same, holding the leather between his hands like a prayer missile. Give Wickless there some dollars for his trouble. He ain't got enough money and it makes him hungry. The other men laughed and Vicky quickly pulled out two single dollars, almost half the money on his purse. He turned and handed it to Wickless, trying not to meet the man's eyes. For no less than blue poison at the moment. You fucking simpleton. Wickless muttered to himself, snatching the bills and rolling into his rack to count them, as though they were more than two. Vicky turned and stumbled out the door as quickly as possible, muttering his litany and walking until he stood amongst the long, solemn faces of the driver's horses. The massive animals flanked him on both sides, giving him sidelong, baleful looks and swaying with the gentle motions of the train. In a moment that seemed caught in time, one of them extended their nose to Vicky. He reached out to pet the creature. It bit him on his thumb, just hard enough to hurt, and then turned around to the rattling metal window behind it. Vicky looked at the welt on his thumb and sighed, wondering why he even bothered. Clinton kept his lantern low as he crested the rocks atop the bluff overlooking the great line of steel snaking its way through the valley. The moon, fatter than he thought possible for this time of the month, hung just over the distant crags of the Sierras. The rail lines shone in the cold blue moonlight, polished as they were to a mere sheen by friction. The train itself was far down the track. A centipede of lantern glow disappearing into the coniferous stands beyond the small lake beneath them. Clinton sighed and raised his lantern, and the others joined him. They crept from the brush, silent atop their horses. Eyes glinted in the lantern light when he cast it around at them. He knew none of them by name. The Pinkerton Agency had cobbled their number together from various other parties and the like operating in the Central Valley. They were strike-breakers, professional bullies. A few were even payroll killers with no real names or places to go home to. Company men, 
like him. They're gone then? The first of them asked. He wore the same mustache, bowler hat, brown suit as all the rest. No identification, no possessions but portable comforts and the tools by which he plied his trade. A couple pistols and a double-barreled shotgun. The workhorses of country carving, of principal disaster. Clinton shook his head. No, he said. They got a few hours on us, but they're stopping for the night up ahead. We'll catch up before daybreak. The men exchanged glances and adjusted their horses, following Clinton down the far slope. Ducky limped into the sleeping car, taking a breath and pulling off his boots. He'd had them on until damn near sundown, but now with the security team back preparing for a larger cargo drop, he finally had a moment to unburden himself of the wads of money he'd been walking on. He'd almost had more than a few heart attacks throughout the day when he'd stepped or moved or adjusted his feet and felt some give and slide beneath his socks. Worried he was going to ruin the money before he ever spent it, he'd curled up his foot so awkwardly it had left him with a god-awful cramp. Look at you, he whispered, pain forgotten when the piles of bills were in hand. The rough wooden floor of the sleeping car was cool and forgiving to his sore feet, and he stretched his toes as he shuffled the cash, looking for damage. It was all fine, if sweaty and foot-smelling, but fine all the same. He whipped his head around protectively, not even meaning to do it, and then fished his little penknife out his pocket and cut a small hole in the side of his mattress. He jammed the money deep inside, down toward the end opposite where his head would lay. Then he flopped down on the shitty, thin mattress and kicked his feet a few times, ensuring the money wasn't easy to feel. It wasn't. All right, then, he said softly to himself pulling his socks and boots back on and listening to the gentle screech of the wheels as the train pulled into station. Elam rolled the rifle over in his hands, frowning and looking over the mechanics of the thing without letting his finger stray too close to the trigger. The boys at St. Augustus had all been fanatical about guns and other weapons, cannons and whatever. The worst had been Jackson, his bunkmate and basically brother, who'd saved up money collecting bottles and sweeping sidewalks in town and used all that hard work to make the most idiotic purchase Elam had ever seen. A steel-blue Colt revolver so new it was still slathered in factory grease like some devilish mechanical newborn. Jackson, who was built like a man after the age of 14 and went by Jackie, had spent every night taking the thing apart cleaning it and pointing it at stuff in their tiny room and pulling the trigger. Click, click, click. He hadn't even bought any bullets for the thing, just the gun itself. It was like a piece of him he'd always been missing, even though he was nearly twice Elam's size and weight, and women were drawn to him like June bugs to a lamplight. If Jackie had been here, he'd probably know the ins and outs of this rifle the way cats knew how to climb, instinctively. As it was... Elam couldn't make heads or tails of the thing. There were basic, obvious parts he knew by the natural osmosis of living in the American West. This part was called a bolt action, and you flicked it back and forth to make the bullets go in and out of the gun. But he could 
move his at all. This part here was called a trigger, and it was a button you pressed to kill people, like a useless sort of typewriter. But in addition to those things were a dozen other clicking, twisting, flipping, snapping bits of metal he couldn't for the life of him determine the purpose of. You need some help with that? The priest asked. Elam looked over to see the older man had his rifle laid out piecemeal before him. Little springs and pins and twisted metal whatnots all arranged in lines. The priest's eyes were dark, but friendly enough. In the dim lamplight, the gnarled scar tissue on his cheek was a black, cross-shaped pool of shadow. I suppose, Elam said. The priest nodded, but didn't leave his seat. His hands flicked over the pieces before him, snapping and sliding them together until the gun was somehow fully whole and pointed at the ceiling. A slice of moonlight shone down through the hole the crazy Castellano had left in the metal up there, and it was the moon the priest seemed to aim at. Elam shuddered, forcing down a memory and trying to focus on the present. The priest set his rifle down and slid over to Elam's booth, taking up the young man's gun and looking it over. He nodded silently and spread out his towel on the tabletop between them, stripping the rifle slowly until it was completely apart. This is the bolt, he said, letting a fat stick of metal dangle from his hand by its arm. Because it's a bolt-action gun, Elam said, trying to sound at least somewhat in the loop. The man cocked his head and nodded slightly. It... it is... A bolt action, but that just means you've moved the bolt yourself using this. He pointed to the arm. This model locks the bolt in place on safe. So you have to flip this little switch right here if you want to cycle it open. Or to load it. He showed Elam the button and the younger man sighed and nodded. The priest went over the parts, pointing at this and that and explaining what did what, though Elam was only half paying attention. How do you load it? he asked. The priest showed him, loading and unloading the rifle a few times and then handing the thing to Elam to empty. He gave the young man a tight, tired smile. It's probably best you not load yours unless you really need to, the priest said, pushing the cloth bag of spare ammunition to the side of the table. So, where are you from? I'd rather not talk about it much. You don't mind, Elam replied, looking at the rifle. The priest chewed something over in his mind and then nodded. Okay, then. Uh, that's no problem, he said. The door opened after the priest had sat down and Ducky returned to the cabin, slinking into his seat opposite the Castellano. The priest watched him with a distracted look on his face and then dug into his pocket button, crouching down so his feet were atop the seat opposite him. The woman, Sue, was sleeping there with her hat over her face. A fine lot you've set yourself in with, Elam thought to himself, looking out the window. The train had started braking a long while ago and was still crying out every slow inch as they pulled into station. He could see all of nothing through the glass save a cobalt blue sky stained with streaks of black cloud. The earth below was deep indigo nothingness marred here and there by faces of stones shining back in the moonlight. Though, for a moment, he thought he saw a distant flicker of yellow, there and gone in a moment. 
Huh, he said, not knowing what to make of it. If it was anything, it was terribly, terribly far from them, and would be impossible to see again now that they were buried inside the forest. The coniferous branches beyond the glass rustled and scraped the sides of the car. Did you see something? The priest called to him. Elam shook his head to say no, but when he looked at the priest, something hard had taken over the man's eyes. It was no longer the friendly, overly familiar sort he'd been a moment ago. I... a light, Elam said. Must have been two miles away, or who knows how far. The priest craned his neck to see past Elam, but there were only trees now beyond the window, flashing ghostly white where the lanterns reached. Elam took a breath nervous to have caused so much alarm from a mild observation. I'm sure it was just some folks out hunting or something. Oh, hunting, yes, the Castellano said from beneath his hat. He didn't remove it to join the conversation, just spoke through the straw. Only hunters out this late, that cattle. The priest stood sharply, waking Sue. She sputtered and hopped to her feet as well, crouching wide-eyed to take in the room. The commotion seemed to make Ducky nervous, though he just cast looks at the door like he wanted to leave. Fuck is going on? Sue said, giving the others a confused look. The mixed mood didn't seem to put her at ease. The priest had gone to the far end of the car and opened a steel slot in the back wall. Even Elam could tell it was some sort of firing port. We are on the menu, the Castellano said, pushing his broad hat up off his shoulders with just his forefingers. He rolled his shoulders and spine in this same fluid motion, which cracked his vertebrae like walnuts and bent him nearly into an upside-down U. Then he settled back, resting the hat on the table in order to watch the priest busy himself with the back of the train. But the boy here said they were miles away. On horses at best. They'll meet us in town, if they ride hard. You saw something? Sue asked Elam fixing her hat and looking around the car for her rifle. The little man running this detail had unlocked the gun locker a few hours earlier, passing out a small amount of ammo and a rifle to all of the security detail. Of all of them, only the priest seemed to have any interest or talent with a long gun. The black boy, Ducky, seemed only slightly less uncomfortable than Elam. The woman was, well, a woman in Elam's eyes, and God only knew what she could do in a firefight. The Castellano didn't seem to care much about the rifle at all. In fact, he turned his nose up at the thing and flicked his fingers at it, going back to sleep and ignoring their supposed boss until the little man huffed and tossed it back into the locker. Yes, I suppose so, Elam said, drumming his fingers on the table. How they conduct themselves is beneath your notes, a voice said in his head, and Elam licked a sudden, unclean feeling off his teeth. Lord God, he hated raising such a fuss over what might have been nothing more than a reflection or the like. Hell, it had come and gone so quickly he might have just imagined it. Well, shit, I guess somebody's earning their pay, the woman said. Elam watched with glum fascination as she popped open her rifle and loaded it with one of the stacked bullet clips, racking the bolt forward with a satisfying kerclack that sent the little stripper clip flying. Then she was at the rear window with the priest, making a seat from the stacks of luggage and looking through the other free hole. Ducky sighed and joined the other two, 
going so far as to ask the woman how to load the gun. Elam took a deep breath and then looked at the rifle in his hands. Taking one of the clips, the priest had emptied and sliding the bullets back onto it. Then he fumbled through the action on the gun, eventually sliding it open and then trying to jam the bullets down into the magazine well as quickly as the woman had. He succeeded only in slipping and bending the clip in his frustration, knocking loose one of the rounds. The bullet rolled off the table and disappeared beneath one of the seats. He sighed and made the mistake of looking in the Castellanos' direction. The man grinned at him ear to ear from beneath his hat, and Elam found himself worrying over his teeth with his tongue and looking out the window as they pulled into the station. Uh, Hey there, folks. If you're like me, then you love a scary story. But why settle for bargain bin, big box store blandness when you can get piping hot homemade horror delivered directly to your home? Support the West Side Fairy Tales today on Patreon, and you can get episodes like this one ad-free, as well as access to merch, ebooks, and other amazing deals. But most importantly, you'll help bring weird, original content like Sin Carriers to life. If you want more bizarre, creepy, and horrifying indie fiction, then go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today. Moira followed Mr. Tavarish out of the sleeping car to the first of the great stacks of wood. In their day, these boards had been sandalwood in color, some oakish but mostly a fairly common honeyed shade of brown gold. Wood color, for no better definition. But here in the dark, they seemed not to care for the light of their lanterns, of the train's fluttering electric lights. The pile was a jagged slice out of the world itself dark and deep. And how many of these are there? Mr. Tavarish asked, tapping the straps holding the pile in place with the toe of his foot. Even those thick, flat canvas ties seemed to be swallowed by the darkness of the wood, almost like bricks sucked beneath the muddy surface of an old road. Moira took a deep, deep breath and rested her fingers against her throat. Her pulse was high, she realized, enough that she could feel the rush of blood in her ears. The noise was only slightly louder than the constant roar of the train. Mud sinking. Why must you repeat yourself? Why must you repeat yourself? Do they ever listen? Seven. Six? After the one we just dropped off, Moira said. She cleared her throat and turned to stick her fingers beneath the collar of her dress. It was a scratchy, high-necked thing with a short light skirt that kept her from getting snagged on parts of the train when she walked, but still low enough to cover the tops of her knee-high leather boots. The dress was, in any case, hotter by far than the comfortable shirts and pants she'd packed. Shirts and pants her father wouldn't let her wear in front of his boys for fear of the sudden sexual blue-collar violence that served as his prime waking fear. Ah, Mr. Tavarish said, picking at the straps and pushing on the pile. He, too, was wearing gloves and seemed to get the fabric caught on something, though he pulled himself free in a second. And there's no other cargo? Some break bulk in the middle car between all these, your own infects included, Moira said, pulling harder at her collar and then nearly ripping the dress away from her torso when Mr. Tavarish turned back to the load. Fresh air cooled the sweat on her chest and she found she could breathe a bit better 
At least, the breaths came easier and the lightness seemed to fade, which was odd, because the dress wasn't all that tight or constricting. We... we normally don't run so light, but these wood piles are some great priority. Tavarish turned to her, giving her a curious expression. So you said, he said, glancing at the pile and then rubbing at something on his chest. Moira blinked, smiled, and nodded. She had repeated herself. Taking stock of her surroundings, she realized they'd passed over the second flatbed and were stepping onto the third. What in the hell? She asked herself. What in the hell? A voice she didn't recognize parroted her own thought in her head. The heat she'd been feeling suddenly dipped into a deep chill. Would he even ask these questions if it was your father he was talking to? Does he know what you do around here? Moira took a breath and shook her head, wiggling her arms at her sides to get her blood back to its proper circulation. This made the fabric of her dress shift uncomfortably over her breasts, and the hairs on the back of her neck stood high for a moment. The sensation was electric, uncomfortably intoxicating, and she found herself readjusting cautiously to avoid it. Seriously now, a voice whispered in the back of Moira's mind. Don't never serious, never serious. Moira said aloud, scaring herself and Mr. Tavarish, who turned to her with wide eyes. She'd scared the living daylights out of the man. She opened her mouth to explain, but only managed an awkward chuckle. She smiled and shook her head. I'm I'm so sorry. I I don't know what, what came over me. Moira giggled and pushed her gloved fingers into her hair, falling against the railing behind her when her legs gave. Vasily caught her arm and held her steady, the panic in his eyes shifting to concern. The older man was severely worried about her, she realized. She smiled and waved her hand at him, oddly unable to speak. He shouted at her and grabbed her with both hands. She chuckled and tried to push him away, but he yelled at her again and bound her up in his arms, dragging her back into the roar of the train. Moira's face slapped against something hard on Mr. Tavarish's chest, and the pain was like a lighthouse in a great fog. Mr. Tavarish rolled her gently away and held her shoulders in place. She was looking up into the sky, a great, starless scar of black obscuring the vision of her left eye. Moira. The woodpile, she realized. Never serious, never take me serious, never serious. Moira. Moira! Mr. Tavarish was saying, He had began to cut apart the front of her dress between worried looks at her face. She realized she was caught at the breathless end of a long giggle, still exhaling though there wasn't any air left in her lungs. Then the panic hit and she began to claw around her throat, trying to find what was choking her, but her flesh was naked. Then Mr. Tavarish's mouth was on hers, blowing air into her so hard she thought her face would pop. A horrid, clenching feeling came and went and Moira suddenly felt a million pins and needles all up and down her body. Mr. Tavarish's face warped and bobbed over her, no longer human, but flatly red like a sunrise, and sporting eight clean, black dots for eyes. 
She tried to push herself away from him, but he held her still. Then she turned and looked into the black void of the wood. It drew her, pulled at her. It was no longer there. It had gone and left only the empty scar in the world. She reached for it, seeing the deeper purple light beyond beating like a heart. Mr. Tavarish's mouth pressed against hers and, this time, her skin seemed to burst into flame. She sucked in a deep, painful breath and then she was breathing on her own again. Panicked, death-obsessed parts of her brain she'd been unable to hear were screaming at her all of a sudden, as though she'd closed a door on them. She felt her own mind reopen to her, her sense of self surfacing in a broad, still pool of shame and confusion. But who was she? Who am I? She asked Mr. Tavarish. Moira, he said, ignoring her question even as he answered it. Can you hear me? He repeated the question twice more before she remembered how to answer. She nodded her head and took a more normal breath. What? What happened to me? She asked, trying to sit up. Mr. Tavarish held his fingers gently over her shoulders, keeping her on her back. Please count to thirty in your head before trying to sit up, he said. We... we already went through this once, I'm afraid. Moira looked up at the sky, closing her left eye this time to block out the view of the wood pile. Its surface had begun to catch the light of Mr. Tavares's lantern again though she wondered if that had ever not been the case. You acted in an unusual way, Mr. Tavarish said to her. She gave him the benefit of her single, open eye. A way you would not think flattering of yourself, I think. You seemed drunk. I think is the best way to say it. A few minutes ago, and you attempted to be indiscreet with me? I'm not sure how to explain or even to understand it. Then you tried to to throw yourself off the train. He pointed to the space behind him, where the railing of the flat platform fell away over top the coupling to the next car. The safety chain there was gone entirely. I, I don't know what to say, Moira muttered, gently pushing his hands away and sitting. Her head felt full of rocks and glass as though she'd spent the day helping herself to brandy. I don't blame you for this, Mr. Tavares said, moving his face in front of hers. She gave him a look that was half frown and half smile. I am quite serious. This is not a a kindness for the benefit of your self-esteem. I think you had a serious medical issue for a moment. A seizure or the like? He stood and helped her to her feet looking her over intently as she regained her balance. Is there any history of that sort of thing in your family? Moira pulled away from him sharply at that question, opening her mouth and then saying nothing for a long moment. Thinking of mother, nobody listened to her. She realized she was avoiding looking at the woodpile, and so turned away from it and Mr. Tavarish entirely. She shivered and held herself tightly, feeling the wetness of her clothing beneath her fingers. I am sorry if that is an unwelcome question, he said, stepping back and adjusting his clothing. 
the debacle had left him in disarray. It's... Uh, it's fine, Moira said, pushing her hand into her hair. The normally tight strands were loose and frizzy over her scalp, floating out of her control. She sighed and looked at the steel beside the woodpile, looking for something in the darkness of the shadow there. Do not go in amongst the wood. She mumbled to herself. The words seemed to hum. Excuse me? Mr. Tavarish asked. Moira shook her head, turned to him, and gave him a tight smile. Then she extended her hand. I'm sorry for being short with you, she said. But I'm not feeling well. Could you escort me back to my room, please? Just on the off chance I... Well, she gave him a bashful smile that only hinted at her own deeper humiliation. He nodded and took her hand, leading her carefully back to the beginning of their little tour. It was only when their footfalls were well out of hearing that Mr. Vaught, the little person who'd read the passenger manifest the day of their departure, crept from the shadows inside the brake bulk container and quietly returned the safety chain to where it had been latched. Tolliver blotted his brow and began the long, arduous process of getting his pants on without Moira's help. Fat had become an indelible part of him the way he thought gout might come to affect the men who suffered that disorder. The paleness of his body in his mirror, the breadth of it, growing like the heat that boils the frog until one day comes the realization that there is no going back. It is not a bit of winter chub, not a spot of blubber a few good weeks of no beer or meat and stiff walks could fix. These pants were not temporary. This shirt was permanent. He sighed and groomed himself, thanking God he'd finished shaving before the last startling jolt of the train rolled him onto his bed. If anything, it was a lazy man's boon not having to lower himself onto the mattress to attach his shoes to his feet. And that's what it felt like, too. An attachment. He used to put shoes on back in the long yesteryears when he could also see his privates in the privy and just reach down and touch his own heel whenever he wanted. Now he had to shift and shuffle and bend until his body adjusted just so, then let his momentum carry the mouth of his shoe onto his foot. The tying of them, oddly enough, wasn't so difficult. Just a bit of breath holding and there you have it. But merely getting them on nearly broke him. Mr. Loeb! Vought said out in the hall, tapping the door lightly with his knuckles. We're all but stopped and offloading. I must wants to see you. Tolliver closed his eyes and felt the silence of the room, thinking on his obligations and reaching down into himself in search of a wellspring of determination that simply did not exist. I'll be there shortly, Tolliver called through the closed door. The little man grumbled and bumbled off down the hall, no doubt imagining some slight in Tolliver's use of the word shortly. He was touchy like that, the little imp. Touchy enough Tolliver would never have hired him if the job were fully his to staff. Hell, he might even try leaving him here in the must's camp just to be rid of him in his surly attitude. Let the little beast dally about in the mines beneath the camp for a while until he sees how good he really has it. Now we go, Tolliver, old boy, Tolliver said to the dim, lonely light of his room. Now we go. He stood and walked into the hall, 
stopping by Moira's room to see if she was out and about, and finding only a rather limp dress laying over her room's easy chair. It was the blue thing he'd bought for her in Los Angeles or San Diego or one of those places down south. Another pretty trifle for his pretty little girl. He picked it up gently, holding it over his arm and burying his nose in the smell of her. It was wonderful, as always, florid and slightly tangy with sweat. The dry, empty smell of the cloth made a final mix that reminded him of his Ellen, her mother, dead now all these years. He set down the dress and wiped his hands free, trying to push the more pleasant thoughts of his daughter aside as he prepared for the must. He did make himself a promise, though. A new dress for her when they finally made St. Louis. Something pink this time, or maybe even red. She was blossoming into quite the woman, despite his every desire for her to remain feisty and small and irrevocably his. 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 The thought arrested him midway through descending the temporary wooden ladder the Must's people had put in place beside his train. It was a fine thought, not entirely his, but so welcome it was like he'd always wanted to have it. His imagination drew him in a profound, overpowering way to the memory of his first time sleeping with his wife. He'd been a virgin until her, and the inside of her body had felt made for him, crafted for him by God, just for him. But it wasn't Ellen's hair he twined in his hands. It wasn't her smell. Her taste beneath his tongue. All right, all right, I'll read it, goddammit. Are you a fan of the West Side Fairy Tales podcast and my, my, my story, Sin Carriers? Then take a second right now, pause this episode, and take a second to like it, comment on it, or share it on your favorite social media sites. This year we're trying to grow the West Side Fairy Tales like never before, and we need your help to do it. So if you have just a second, use Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the hell, and share the West Side Fairy Tales with the world. And if you want, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and what have you. Just search West Side Fairy Tales or use the link in the episode show notes. All right, that's it. Now get you. It's Oliver, the must said snapping the fat man out of his reverie. Losing that train of thought was so painful, Tolliver almost snapped at the man. Thankfully, he regained himself just in time. Sir, it is a great honor, a privilege, to be in your presence again, Tolliver said. His tongue fired up like the great steam engine at the head of the train and got going. He complimented the must's new wardrobe, hideous, absolutely hideous, his now perfect English, very true, and the condition of the mining camp, debatable. The must took all this in while floating ahead of Tolliver in the direction of the camp's head office. He moved in a way that made it feel as though you were leading him, even when he was leading you, Tolliver had noted. It was a trick of which Tolliver was profoundly envious. I'm done with your talking, the must said. I really love compliments, Tolliver. But you have a bad habit of giving too many while seeing too little. The must, slightly taller than Tolliver and very slender despite a bulbous gut, flared his wool jacket and flipped it over the back of his office chair. 
A dusty, mushroomy smell staled the air. He smiled, thick, yellow teeth doing little to flatter his face. The eyes above were milky and lightly iridescent, the borders of the irises as irregular as the sides of a ditch. Despite that, Tolliver knew the man could see him as well as anybody. The man had the vision of an owl, and saw even better in the dark. And it was dark. The office was a clotted collection of shapes, furniture, and paper with a scab of a lantern on the wall beside the must. It was likely lit only for Tolliver's benefit. I asked to see you, Tolliver, the must said. But I hate seeing you. You know that, don't you? Tolliver smiled and bit his lip and looked away to nod his head. You've learned your lesson about using my name, though, haven't you? Tolliver kept nodding. Good. I brought you in here to tell you I want all of the pallets. All of them. You're only getting two, Tolliver said, still smiling and looking away. What did you just say to me? The must asked. The air in the room tasted like dust. Tolliver could feel it thickening on his tongue. You're only getting two, Tolliver said. No more, no less. He said the words with conviction, but didn't dare look over the table. Eventually, the must laughed and the air became breathable. To a degree, at least. Tolliver had to stand and go to the door to spit before returning to the conversation. The must favored him with a soft smile. His features, Tolliver thought he might hail from the cold steppes beyond the north of China, were a collection of distorted, inhuman angles time had faded into a cruel mask. He called to the space behind him, and a small boy shuffled forward to deposit a cup of tea on the must's desk. Tolliver watched the child disappear. Do you like him? The must asked. You can have a taste of mine if I can taste some of yours. Tolliver cleared his throat and said nothing, just kept his fists clenched in his lap like a misbehaving student sent to the office. No, of course not. You've grown some spine, Tolliver, and more than a bit of belly. It suits you. Thank you, sir, Tolliver said. The must gave a bored scoff and lit a cigarette. I wish you were more like your brother, he said. Gulliver is a boring boy, but only in his motivations, his methods. Namust took a long drag of the cigarette and then licked his lips. There was a crust on them like you might get kissing the sand at the beach. It came off in flakes that settled over the desk. I don't think I'll ever see you again, you know, the must said. If you have something to say... You should say it. You should try doing something, if you'd like. I'm just fine, sir, Tolliver said. But are you? The must asked. He traced his cigarette along the desk, causing little bits of dust to smolder and burn into embers. All that potential on your train and you have no ambitions toward it. You're an errand boy to the end. Not even Blackwell's man, but your brother's. Not even an equal. And tell me, what is he going to do with you when you're back up there in Pennsylvania? 
The must reached out with his cigarette. Letting it burn so close to Tolliver's eye, the man could almost feel his eyelashes singeing. What will he do with that daughter of yours? His, my, my, his, my, 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 Tolliver slapped the must's hand and the cigarette burst apart, filling the room with embers that stilled in the air and burned in a pulsing rhythm. They moved up in front of the must's face and glowed more strongly. Tolliver's mouth had gone dry. He dared not look away. A single gunshot from outside the office ended the moment. The must glared at Tolliver. Not angry, really. Just disgusted. And walked past him. The fat man breathed a deep, shuddering sigh of relief and followed. More than a dozen men had assembled in the dusty field between the tracks and the office. All of them dressed the same and riding horses. A lot of them had either rifles or pistols drawn, a few shotguns even, and they had cornered the must's dig boys up against the side of the boardwalk beside his rail spur. One of them held Mr. Vaught by his hair and stood with a pistol barrel pushed into the side of the little man's neck. Now, now, the Pinkerton said. Stay calm and quiet and we'll ride out of here with no harm done to you. The man saw the must and Tolliver standing in the doorway and waved his pistol at them. You two, boss needs everybody right over there. What's your boss's name? The must asked. Better yet, what's your name? Buckle, the Pinkerton replied in a flat voice. Buckle Tai Shu. The must smirked and walked past the man, who ordered Vaught down the boardwalk in the direction of the train. Tolliver's heart raced in his chest. Hard enough, he now had a legitimate fear of it bursting outright. The Pinkertons were swarming the train, his train, going over this and that and clearly getting it ready to disembark. Worse, Blackwell's hand-picked security team was nowhere to be seen. Given their constitution, they'd more than likely hightailed it, the first sign of danger. Sweat, where is she? Good evening, gentlemen, a plain-looking man said as they approached. The one that had given that ridiculous name, Buckle Taishu, tossed Vaught into the dirt and took his place beside the man. Vaught stayed motionless on the ground. My name is Clinton, Mr. Clinton, if you prefer, but I assure you assembled that you have no need for the use of my name. We represent the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. And we are commandeering this train and seizing all goods settled on it under suspicion of malfeasance. This is completely within our rights to do, though if you have some grievance, you can take it up with our Pacific office in Stanton, California. The man produced a card from his pocket and handed it to Tolliver, riding his horse close enough to bump the man as he did so. Tolliver looked the piece of paper over and saw it only contained initials, R.J. Clinton, and an address in Stanton. He stuffed it into his vest pocket and looked up at the man. The lot of you are free to conduct yourselves however you see fit once we've departed. Though you would be wise to not try rejoining the train. Clinton continued. That is... 
Save for a few unscrupulous individuals, our dispatch has warned us, are traveling with you. Clinton rode in a large circle, shouting to Tolliver's drivers, the Must's dig boys, and whomever else might hear. Everybody, it seemed, save for Blackwell's goddamned security detachment. There is, firstly, a Negro boy suspected of stealing $2,000 from an associate of the Pinkerton organization, Clinton shouted. We are on the lookout for the boy and the money. The bringing us either will net you a tidy sum in recompense. Same goes for a cross-dressing girl of about 25. She looks like a boy to some who is wanted for the crime of murdering a religious man of some standing. She is wanted alive in any condition so long as she can speak and answer questions. There's also an Indian boy in his early 20s run out on his debts. Reward provided only if alive and well. And lastly, a tall Mexican man wanted for numerous assaults, murders, and acts of thieving. Wanted dead or alive. Clinton trotted his horse over to Tolliver's assembled drivers, giving them all a long look. This train here is what we were sent after, he said. It's reward enough for me, but the entire lot of you is about to walk back to the coast with nothing save what you've got in your pockets. I am not sure what sort of loyalty you might have to these people, and I certainly don't see them amongst you now. But a good Christian man with an eye for a dollar will turn over these degenerates quick, fast, and in a hurry. He leaned over his knee and looked closely at the drivers, giving each of them a long few seconds. Rat hunting, Tolliver thought glumly, though he was considering turning Blackwell's security team in himself if they were all that bad. Why not at least recuperate some of the expenses? He thought about Blackwell's dull, purple-gold eyes and kept his mouth shut. I think I might have seen at least one of them, Colt Wickless said, stepping forward and raising a finger. That little cross-dressing bitch, I I know her. Same, cabron, same, a voice called from the shadow of the trees beside one of the must's storage buildings. But I don't think you'll know me. The lanky Mexican Tolliver had seen that morning strode into the dull, flickering lamplight. Blood dripped from the heavy-bladed knife in his right hand, leaving wet little balls of sand beside his footprints. His other hand rested out of sight inside his poncho. All Tolliver could see of his face were the man's grinning teeth beneath the brim of the broad straw hat. Then he bowed to the Pinkertons and revealed his other hand, The man's head dangled from his fingers by its hair, the mouth jawless, and a pink tongue hanging impossibly low before the ragged throat. Clinton's eyes widened, and Buckle Tie's shoe raised his gun. Soy gato, the Mexican said, and Buckle's head exploded. On the 
next episode of Sin Carriers. The Pinkerton ambush is underway. Our travelers are spread out and outnumbered with a bounty on their heads. But it's clear the fight has just begun, as Pinkerton heads are already exploding, rolling and flying as the mysterious Gatto joins the fray. As the Pinkertons try to take the train, Sue and Ducky are put into an awkward and deadly position. Moira feels a sudden, irresistible call during the chaos, and it may be left up to Vasily to protect her from both the Pinkertons and herself. Meanwhile, Mildover helps Elam put his new training to use, and Toller finds his already strained relationship pushed past the breaking point. Will our travelers survive this ambush in one piece, or will the Pinkertons prevail? Will we find out what's so special about these sinister woodpiles? And just exactly who is the must? And how dangerous is he? You may find the answers to these questions and more on the upcoming fifth episode of Sin Carriers Shootout. And until next time, and as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell in Louisville, Kentucky. Audio processing, mastering, and original foley provided by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2022, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.